How many of you have ever wondered if you have true faith? Anybody? Thank you for those honest hands. How many of you have ever wondered uh, if you have saving faith? Like we can have faith in something. You can have faith in, in a pilot because you get onto an airplane. You have faith in American Airlines. That's why you booked yourself on that plane. But do you have saving faith? And uh, how many of you have wondered, is my faith that I have actual biblical faith? Anybody? Yeah. And so our culture has introduced so many versions of faith. And uh, we want to study today, look at what is true biblical saving faith, the kind of faith that saves you eternally. This is important to know. You know, you have Bon Jovi singing Keep the Faith. He has an understanding and a definition of faith. You have George Michael singing Keep the Faith. He has an understanding and of a, a certain kind of faith. And um, we are also told, hey, just hang in there, keep the faith, hold on. You know, what does that mean? Not in, in, a, in a cultural Gentile version thereof, but in a scriptural version of faith. What is it? What's the nature of it? Do I have it? How do I get it? All right. So every creature that God ever created has, in fact, got a nature. Uh, Pastor Doug spoke on um, the nature of nature, which is an interesting thing, because if you think about it, there are two revelations that we have. We have natural revelation that God shows himself to us in natural ways. He shows us his glory by having the sun rise. He shows us his perfection by helping us understand math. And he shows us his sovereignty in, in all these ways and how fantastic he is. That's why no man will ever be without an excuse. Let me say this. No man will ever have an excuse when they stand before God and say, well, I never knew there was a God. No, it's evident that there is a creator by looking at the creation. So God has a natural law, but then also there is a, what they call a specific uh, revelation, special revelation, which is what we get in the Word of God. And this is special revelation to a special group of people. And... But nobody is exempt or nobody's excused from natural revelation. We all see uh, God in, the nat in nature, but we all see, also see God in His Word. So every creature that God ever created has this nature. As a matter of fact, the nature of a specific animal will be indicative of the personality of that animal and the character of that animal. That's why some people love poodles and other people love Rottweilers, right? Uh, the nature of an animal will be indicative of how that animal will act when you come close to them, when you have them in your house, and so forth. <clears throat> and so you have a good-natured poodle, and you have an aggressive uh, um, animal, you know. So there are different natures. But today we're going to ask, what is faith, and what is that nature of faith? Like, how does faith act, and, and what is the character of faith? What can you expect from the person who has faith? Now, the Reformation, which is what we're going to be celebrating on October the 31st coming up here, was a very, very key moment in the history of humanity, the history of the church, a very, very key moment. And the Reformers made distinctions regarding faith because the whole entire Reformation hung on the understanding of faith and what it does. Justification by faith alone was Luther's verse that he read, and he had an epiphany, a revelation, and God opened his eyes, and he realized, actually, I'm justified by faith. But what is faith? What is faith? And so Martin Luther got this revelation that it wasn't by faith plus anything. It was by faith and faith alone are we justified. And of course, upon this, he stood and he could do no other. So let's ask the question, what is saving faith, therefore? What is saving faith? Now, in his day, 
uh, people accused Luther of two things. Uh, they accused him of teaching the doctrine of cheap grace, where all a person had to do was say, I believe, boom, I'm saved forever. I'm in the kingdom because I said I believe. And then it was true, apparently, at least hyper grace, cheap grace says, no, you're saved because you believe. You're a believer. Now, we used to have a lot of problems with that in our church where if somebody said that they believed, there could never be a question, there could never be counsel, there could never even be a prayer for that person's salvation. They said they believe, you know, was always the response to me. Like, all right then. But that was, in fact, the very reason for the Reformation. Because it was a revelation of the fact that it was not by faith plus anything that people are saved. It was by faith and faith alone. But that faith, that faith was a very distinctive faith. It was a very interesting, it was a very scriptural faith, a very biblical faith that had a nature to it. It wasn't just any kind of like, I believe, I believe, I believe. It wasn't that kind of thing. And so they actually accused Luther of cheap grace cheap grace where anybody is now a christian because at some point in their life they said they believe regardless of what their lives looked like then there was a second criticism that came to luther and that was that he was an antinomianist anti against nomianism the law of god anti the law meaning that i am saved and the law can now be thrown away. Like an Andy Stanley kind of thing, you know, like forget the Bible. I'm saved because I believe. Only believe, the Bible says, remember? So that's all I'm going to hold on to, that one single verse. Even if that one single verse doesn't harmonize with the rest of scriptures, I'm going to hold on to that one single verse and I'm going to say, I don't care what the world says, the Bible says right here, only believe. And that's all I'm going to do. Throw the Bible away, throw the law away, throw God's standards away, and live like hell, end up in heaven. Ah, because I believe, I said I believe. That's antinomianism. So they, they accused Luther of cheap grace and antinomianism. And because of this, which is a wonderful thing in disguise, it's of course not nice to be, to be told that you're a heretic, right? But it drives you to go into scriptures and study, okay, well then, what is the truth? And that is what persecution does. Persecution refines the church's positions on different issues. And right here in the history of the church, God allowed men to dig as deep as they possibly could in order to understand biblic the nature of biblical saving faith. So the question was, could a person be an antinomian? In other words, forget the law. I believe I'm good. Could a person be saved by cheap grace? In other words, I can, I'm saved. It costs me nothing. It only costs Jesus everything. Could, is that saving faith? We see that James, the brother of Jesus, he says that if a man has faith, but no works, he asks that very, very important question, will that man be saved? Can that faith save you if it's by faith and faith alone? In other words, will a faith that is dead faith save? Will a faith that is barren save? Will a faith that never heals any kind of fruits or changes, does that faith save? And this is the very question that James is asking. It's just a little too cold in here, thanks, sir. So G James, of course, asks that question, you know, with total clarity. And James says, with a resounding answer, he says, no. No, that faith does not save. A dead faith, a barren faith, a faith that heals no change in life is a faith that does not save. It's not a biblical faith. That nature, it's like a, it's like a, a Rottweiler is, is he, is he really one if he has a poodle's nature? No. If you take a poodle's nature out of the poodle and put, 
put it into a pit bull. Is that really a pit bull? No, because that pit bull wants to cuddle all day and everything, and he's scared of somebody knocking on the door, you know, like a regular poodle. And so in the same way, if you have this faith that you come up with um, that's outside extra biblical, is it a real faith? And James says, no, it's not, because the apostles dealt with the same issue. Remember, they were fighting Gnostics. They fought Marcion. Who did the same thing? He threw the, he threw the law away. He was an antinomianist. And so these men of God, these apostles, were dealing with the same things that we are dealing with here today. So Luther and the rest of the reformers responded to the criticism of cheap grace and antinomianism by, by defining saving faith, biblical saving faith. And um, he referred to faith that justifies as fides viva, fides viva, which means a living faith, an alive faith. It's not just something you claim. It's something that's alive. He, uh, fides vida, uh, viva is a vital faith, a faith that inevitably and immediately begins yielding fruits of righteousness. The moment somebody has that faith, there's an immediate change in that person. And let me tell you what that change is. That change is they immediately are concerned over what they used to give themselves to, realizing like, you know what, this, I'm... I need to make right. That's the first thing that comes to this person with a living faith. I need to figure, I need to make right. I can't just keep living like this. And I'm saying that because a lot of people go, well, the person that gets saved, he doesn't immediately become perfect. No, he doesn't. But the sanctification process immediately starts in that person's life. That person immediately starts being sanctified, being cleansed. So in Luther's day, This was the argument. Faith. What is it? What's the nature of it? And what else is necessary in order to be saved? So he said it this way. Justification is by faith alone. But not by faith that is alone. Justification is by faith alone. You cannot be saved any other way. By nothing other than faith alone. You cannot add anything to it because it's adding to the gospel. But that faith is never alone, implying that there's always an effect. There's always something that happens because of it. And so in his day, of course, Luther was arguing against both the Roman Catholic's version of faith on the one hand and the antinomianist version of faith on the other hand. These were two ditches and he said, we can't fall on either one of those. And um, it can be explained this way, and I should have put it on the, on the uh, I should have put it in uh, the notes in blue. Um, but the, the Roman church basically had it this way. There are three equations. Watch this. Faith plus charity equals justification. Faith, let me do it the other way around. Faith plus charity equals justification. In other words, faith plus works equals justification. Antinomianists said faith alone equals justification minus any works. The reformer said both of those are wrong. It's faith equals justification plus works. There's no justification because of faith. No, there's works because of faith. Let me say it this way. Uh, I, I said it the wrong way. Faith equals justification, but justification leads to works. That's basically what it is. So in other words, where the Roman Catholic Church ex uh, explained faith plus works leads to justification. And then, of course, the other side of the spectrum, the antinomianists believed that faith leads to justification and needs no works at all. And it's, it will be authentic and real without any kind of proof of it. The reformers said no faith leads to justification that is evidenced by a changed life. So this is what James meant when he said, show me your faith without your works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith 
by my works. So he wasn't saying you have to have works in order to have faith. He was saying, no, no, no. I have proof that I have faith. You have no proof thereof. And it happens to be that the nature of biblical faith, the nature of it, like that bulldog has a nature, he bites. And he always does. Faith always responds in certain ways. It is the nature of it. So the question then was, well, then what are the elements of faith? What are the elements of faith? And I'm going to try and help you understand where you are at. And this is what I love about ministers that can clearly articulate things. They bless me by showing me who I am, where I'm at, and where I need to go next. I don't want to play with your emotion and you walk out happy knowing, knowing less. You know, like sometimes you listen to somebody and you feel like, man, I just, I just became dumber. That's <laughs> okay. I, 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 I want to help people today. I want to help your mind so that you can identify whether you have authentic biblical saving faith. Okay? <clears throat> so the reformers went about identifying the definition of saving faith. In other words, what is this faith made of? What is the ingredients to saving faith? And they came up with three ingredients. Three ingredients. And they called it noticia is the first one. That's the first step to having saving faith. The second is a census. A census. And that is the second step to having saving faith. And finally, fiducia is the final step to having saving faith. Fiducia. Now, uh, I was wondering if you can, Robert, if you don't mind putting all three of those words onto uh, one screen. Noticia a census and fiducia. So let's look at them individually, and uh, we're going to look at what these different ingredients are, but they are also in process. Like it's the one needs to happen first before the second one can happen, before the third can even be real. All right, so let's first look at notitia. Notitia refers to the content of faith. In other words, the object of your faith. And what is the object of your faith? The person and work of Jesus the person and work of Jesus. There is certain, there's a certain information or set of inf a, 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 a list of things that must be presented before one can believe it. Like, for instance, do you believe? Your response would be, in what? Right? Again, if I ask, do you believe? You would say, in what? That ought to be the next response. Well, that is what's been answered here. It's the object of a person's faith. So in the early church, the preaching of the gospel was the proclamation of the information about God's plan for salvation in Christ Jesus. This was the notitia, and it is still the notitia. People have to believe in the Jesus of the Bible, not in the Jesus of somebody's imagination, in the Jesus of the Bible. I said to somebody on Facebook the other day, it's a pastor that I'm messaging back and forth, and again, the problem that people have is with not just the inerrancy of Scripture, in other words, that, it, that the truths of Scripture do not contradict. There is no inerrancy of truth, of scriptural truth. People go like, well, there are, th what, 300,000 errors within the Bible. Well, those aren't errors per se. If you have, if, if you have the word honor written in England versus the word honor written in, in, in America, you know, you, you spell it two different ways, right? Well, that's added as an error, an, an alteration within Scripture. It, do, it doesn't matter that there are alterations in Scripture. The question is, are there any contradictory truths within Scripture? And that is absolutely no. There are no contradictory truths within Scripture. But there are many uh, different alterations made within Scripture. I mean, for heaven's sakes, we have, what, 27 um, different translations? And if you go to the Bible, or if you go to the Creation Museum, they have this portion there also, um, 
which just shows you the amount of the amount of transcripts that we have from ancient times of all these different scriptures. So in other words, what I'm saying is if 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 we have <clears throat> five different people, five different people copy the same letter and they have their own copy of the original letter. We have five people copy it as close as it possibly can. And you take the amount of errors that would have been made right there. And you say, okay, now, on the one hand, we have five people copying the, this, this original. And we add up the amount of errors. Let's say each one make five mistakes. That's 25 mistakes. 25 errors. Um, misspelling and so forth. And then you put 27,000 people on the other hand, and you have 27,000 people copy off of the same article. Now, how many errors do you think will be under 27,000 people copying off the same? Like a boatload, right? Because we have so many ancient documents copied so many times by so many people in so many languages on so many continents. Of course, it's a good thing to have. <laughs> what you need to know is what is the most ancient. That's, that's what the question is. So the argument about all these, all these alterations, it, it, it just doesn't hold up. It's a good thing that you have 30,000 alterations but not necessarily contradictions of truth in a scripture, in scriptures, because we, we have what's, what Daniel Wallace, Dr. Daniel Wallace always mentions, he calls it an embarrassment of riches, an embarrassment of riches, the amount of documents we have in different languages, all of the same document and all of their truth harmonizes. But you might, mis you might misspell a word or you might say it differently, but the truth of it. All right, so... My point is this. We have to have notitia in order to have authentic faith that saves. What is notitia? Notitia is the, the object, the person of and the work of Jesus Christ. And when we have the object, now we can go, we can we can move to the second ingredient of faith which is a census, which simply means to assent, to assent. This is simply the intellectual affirmation of that truth. In other words, you mentally ascend to a specific truth. You cannot have biblical saving faith if you don't agree with who the person of Jesus is and the work of Christ is. Like if you go, if, for instance, <clears throat> let's say you have, we'll do a mental exercise here. Do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Do you believe this? Okay. So if you said yes, you believe that, you would not be making a religious statement, would you? No, you would be intellectually affirming to a fact that George Washington, in fact, was. So if you said you believe that, you're mentally ascending to a historical fact and you're saying, I believe that is true, but it's still not saving faith. It's still not saving faith. And this is where people, this is where people get it wrong. For instance, you have a whole entire movement banking on the fact that there are seekers out there, seekers after God, when in fact the Bible says no one seeks after God. No one. So what they do is, they go, no, no, there are many seekers out there. What we need to do is we need to bring them in and we need to get them to agree to the truths of the scriptures. Now, I would say now that's not bad to do. Like if you're ministering to somebody, you have to give them the object in which you would want them to have faith in, right? So you would have to explain to them Jesus, the person of Jesus and the work of Christ was necessary because you are fallen and depraved. He is your answer. And he's the only possible answer they could be because he's the only one without sin. Now, 
if you're ministering to somebody that way and you, and you bring them past the fact that here's the object of your faith, now what you need to do is you need to realize that these aren't, these are, this is not an allegory we're talking about. Jesus wasn't an idea. He was an actual person. That's why in, um, in the um, Apostolic Creed, it talks about, and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Why would they throw that in there? Because they were dealing with Gnostics that turned everything into an allegory and said, no, no, Jesus didn't live. He's an, he's an idea of what a good man would be. That sacrifice is God telling you that he would want for you to live selflessly. Everything become ethical instead of historical. But it's impossible to have saving faith if you were deist, I mean, if you were, if you were, not, if you were a Gnostic, let me say, or dualist, where you actually, you actually like Jordan Peterson, by the way, um, I'm not sure if you would believe in an actual Christ who actually died upon a cross for your sins, specifically for your sins, and then was buried and actually rose from the dead. Those are historical facts. The way we establish facts in the, in the courts today is the same way you establish facts regarding that. How? Eyewitnesses that wrote down their testimony at the time of their lives. And Jesus showed himself to many people. Many pe you know, we, many people were at the crucifixion who gave their testimony. Many people saw him after he rose from the dead. One time, 500 people saw him after he rose from the dead. And we have the apostles as eyewitnesses that saw him ascend into heaven on a cloud. So there were eyewitnesses. And we have multiple gospels all telling the same story and multiple eyewitnesses at the time of the writing of the gospel. So, yeah, Jesus was an actual historical person who actually died and rose and ascended into heaven. These are, these are historical facts. And so what happens is for a person to have true saving faith, they first have to have the object of their faith, the person of Jesus and the work of Christ. They have to mentally ascend or agree to those historical facts. And when they get there, then they can go to the third ingredient of saving faith. And the reformers said, and that part right there, of course, is out of your hands. You can't, you can't, this third part here is the miraculous part. It's called fiducia. Fiducia is the element we know as trust. Trust. <clears throat> Fiducia begs the question, can you trust in, can you rest upon, rely on the facts about the cross? Can you rely upon those to be what will ultimately save you? Because what happens is, in let's say, for instance, the, <clears throat> the seeker movement, they will bring people to a place where they go like, do you want heaven? Yes, I do want heaven. Who doesn't want heaven? The question isn't, do you want heaven? Do you want Jesus? And that's the question. Is your inheritance heaven or is he your inheritance? Yeah, he's my inheritance. Too many people want eternal life. They want health, wealth. They want everything. They don't want God. And you can bring a person through the first portion and the second portion, the first ingredient and the second ingredient with them ever, with them not wanting God, but everything that God's hand can offer. And herein lies nominal Christianity. The whole entire church, the nominal church, is for most part filled with people who have walked past the first block and said, yep, I understand Jesus was um, a person, died, buried, rose, Ascended, he's my high priest, got it. All right, what next? Next is you have to agree that this actually happened. Okay, got it. Mentally ascend to it. Historians said it happened. Josephus said it happened. Eusebius said it happened. All those ancient historians said it happened. We have, we have writings from all, all the way from Justin Martyr. We have writings 
Okay, we, it happened. It happened. It's an actual historical fact. Got it now. Where's my stuff? Can I go to heaven now? <laughs> Can I go to heaven? And for most part, people go like, only believe, brother. You can join our church. We got 15,000 people on a Sunday morning. Join our church. We all believe. But the reformer said, wait, 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 wait. Not too fast. Fiducia is the element that you now have to include in your faith to make it authentic and saving faith, which is the element of trusting in those truths, relying on those truths, resting in those facts about Jesus and the cross, that it is sufficient to save you. It is enough to justify you for all eternity. It is the trusting. It is, and what do you do when you trust? I trust them. I don't know, man. I'm just trusting that. Every, I just trust that they're going to come through. I just trust that it's going to work. I just trust that. I'm not, there's nothing I can do at this point. I now trust. It's when you actually don't grab your faith and you start swinging it around like it's a, sab like a sword, like a lightsaber. No, you don't, it's not your power. It's, it's, your, it's you giving to God, not you achieving. Now I'm talking about saving faith. So the question is, can you trust in, rest in, and rely on the facts of Jesus' work to be enough for your salvation? R.C. Sproul tells a story about how he was watching Dr. James Kennedy uh, teaching on faith. And uh, Dr. James Kennedy, <clears throat> he put a chair down in this lecture room where he was lecturing and he asked this young man, he said to this young man, now look at this, the object I'm putting down in front of you. It's made out of steel. It's got thick bolts and everything. And, and he says, um, he asked the young man, he says, um, do you believe that this chair could hold you up? Do you believe it? The young man says, absolutely. And Dr. Kennedy then asked, well, is that chair right now supporting your weight? The young man said, no, it's not. He says, why not? He says, because I'm not in it. I'm not sitting in it. I'm not resting in it. Of course, the young man understood where he was going. So you see, it is, the one, it is one thing to agree that, that something can support you. It's one thing to agree that something can hold you. But what, what you believe about that chair is totally accurate. You believe that it could but it's not. And the difference between that, fiducia, trust in, rely on. So it's a t totally different thing for you to sit in that chair and, s and support your weight. Now, after you have received the, the data, the information about the person of Jesus and the work of Christ, after you received that object, after you've mentally ascended to the truth of those facts, that it's historically actual, actually happened and that Jesus wasn't just a story, you now come to the place where you are required to put your trust in that which you say you believe. Do you believe that Lincoln Abraham, Abraham Lincoln was, sorry, can you believe that, was in fact the, uh, was a president of the United States? Do you believe that? Yes. All right. It doesn't save you, even though you believe, because it's not a religious statement. And just saying Jesus is the Christ, and he's historically affirmed, that does not save you either. You have to actually trust that he died on that cross specifically for you. This is the step of making, of where faith actually becomes alive. Now, fiducia is therefore the idea of trusting in the data present. Fiducia actually has, however, another element. This is the miraculous element of it because it's a two-sided coin. The first side, wow, the first side is... Uh, <laughs> is you trusting 
That's the first side. That what he has does, done is sufficient for you. The second element of that is affection. Affection. Fallen man has zero ability to love God. Let me say that again. Fallen man has zero ability to love God. So in other words, it doesn't matter if you take a seeker and you walk him through the first step. I, I totally understands the life of Jesus and what Jesus did. Number two, I agree historically. I believe it is what happened. Now, what you're asking him to do is, can you give yourself to him? Can you trust in him? his way of doing things. Can you trust his timing in which he chooses to do things? Can you trust that he is who he says he is? Because you can mentally ascend to the historical facts of Jesus, but not trust that he is in fact the deity he claims to be. That he's in fact the high priest he says he is. Your high priest representing you to God the Father. The unregenerate heart cannot do that, can claim that they've done it, but it cannot do it because the unregenerate heart <coughs> is a heart of stone. Fallen man has this heart. This heart of stone cannot have long-standing faith. Remember Jesus told the story about the four soils, the wayside soil, the wayside soil. Then he had the uh, the the. the the rocky soil, and then the thorny soil, and then the good soil. The only person saved there is the good soil because nowhere else did the word take root and produce. It was a dead faith. It had no production. And so what we're talking about here is the stony heart. The stony heart ultimately does not produce. They can get excited about the gospel for a little bit, but ultimately when pressure comes, when life gets busy, they're gone. Because it did, there was no depth, they couldn't shoot their roots, and they couldn't grow up in it. So what I'm saying to you is the person with a stony heart cannot participate in the third ingredient of saving faith, which is fiducia. But there's a second reason why they cannot. Because fiducia, on the other side of that same coin, refers to affection for God. Affection for God. True faith completely relies upon God, trusts God completely, but has affection for God that they never used to have. Because the person with a stony heart cannot have this love for him. It has zero ability to love God. It only loves self. Unless the Lord gives them a heart of flesh that is affectionate toward him, man will not love God. The Bible says man is God's enemy. Man's mind is at enmity with God. Man cannot see God as loving. He only sees God as hating. That's why there would be a gnashing of teeth in hell forever. That's not because a person is in pain. You know, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, weeping is because they weep for themselves. And gnashing is because they angry at God for doing this to them. How dare you? There is no repentance because repentance is a gift from God. Seek it while it may be found because it won't always be available for you. So fallen man has this heart of stone, doesn't love, cannot be affectionate toward God. It is loveless and it is lifeless. This heart has no affection for the work of Christ except for when the Holy Spirit comes and changes him. He gives you a gift called faith and this faith that we receive is in fact christ's faith and that is why it cannot fail you the person who has true faith is a fail-proof faith he doesn't lose his faith <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't have faith that is not strong enough to change him he doesn't have a faith that is uh that that um that he can just walk away from. That is not how it works. Why not? Because it's Christ's faith and Christ is faithful. 
In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says that. It says, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And really, you've got to see, especially word faith movement, have it completely backwards. It's my faith that saved me. No, it's Jesus' faith that saved you. L listen to it again. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, that is what saved you. Because that is the gift that you received. For, you, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yours, it is a gift from God. Where did he get it? Christ. Christ's faith placed inside of you when he gave you a heart, a believing heart that repents and cries, Abba, Father. Why is it that somebody who gets saved, before they got saved, they couldn't care less about God, they felt no guilt for, for sin. They get saved suddenly, doesn't matter how many nerds in the church, they love the body of Christ, they love the Word of God, which used to bore them to death, and now their heart cries, Abba, Father. Now, the things they used to love, they look at it and they go like, oh, my body still yearns for it at times, but I feel rotten when I give myself to it. That is a safe person. That is a person with a brand new heart. They hate what they don't want to do and they hate not doing what they know they want to do. Remember Romans chapter 7? Paul is saying the things I hate, I do them. Why? And I hate the fact that I do. The things that I love, I don't do it. And I hate that I don't do it. And so here you are, born again with a brand new heart, a brand new creature. And you're going like, man... I love new things and I hate new things. <laughs> you know, I have new values, things that used to be important no longer are and things that never were important, now, are, now they are important. So my priorities changed. I love different kinds of people. Now, you see, that is true saving faith or evidence thereof, even though that person is still struggling to live out this, these new loves that they have and these new hates that they have. But I want to read this to you again because I think it's a, it's a mind shift for many. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Actually, it is, it's, it's pretty it's mind shift for me. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Then it says, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. By the faith of Christ. This faith is given to you by who? The Holy Spirit. He gives as He wills. John 3. Not as we will, as He wills, He gives. And he, and he births people anew. Faith is a gift. Let me go back. Let me just give you the reference there. Faith is given to you by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Faith is increased. How? By hearing the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. So to have faith is to have repentance which is also a gift from God so when he says blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with all these heavenly blessings what's he talking about faith that wasn't yours isn't yours you didn't have and couldn't get it but he came and he gave you a new heart repentance is a gift you didn't have it you couldn't have it you didn't want it you rejected it but he came and he gave you repentance now you can't help but repent that's why you hate doing the things you know you don't want to do So to have faith is to have repentance, which is also a gift from God. And you cannot have faith in Christ without also turning away from the faith you had in yourself. I think about this for a moment. What is repentance? I'm turning away. I used to think I'm so good and I'm so awesome and yeah, me. But then I came to Christ and I realized total depravity. I'm like, oops me. <laughs> I need a savior. I run to Christ. That's repentance right there. That's turning away from believing in yourself to believing in Christ. That's why it's impossible to have faith in Christ without also turning to Him, meaning you're turning away from self. Oh, there's so much to be said about faith. I wanted to go over Matthew 15, 21. Canaanite woman came to Jesus. Actually, let me read it to you and you'll just see. Faith has a nature and that nature is humble. That nature is humble. Watch this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold... A Canaanite woman from the <clears throat> region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me. Tell you, we have to learn the way we come to God 
is like that persistent woman who went to the judge every day, all day long, over and over and over and over again. But what, how do we come? We beg him for mercy. We don't demand for stuff. We beg him for mercy. God, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon my children. Have mercy upon my family. God, have mercy upon our church. Have mercy, God. Because all we deserve is what? God's wrath, hell. That's what we deserve. That's justice. But instead of giving me justice, he gave me mercy. So to some, he gives justice. To others, he gives mercy. And he is never unjust. If he gave everybody justice, he'd still remain just. But he's so good, so loving, and so kind. He chose you to give you mercy. And he remains totally just. He's never unjust. So here's this woman and says, and, and she cried out, Have mercy on me, O Lord. O Lord, she's a Gentile. Jesus was not viewed as somebody for the Gentiles. He was Messiah to the Jew. Here's this Gentile. And this Gentile comes, have mercy upon me, son of David. Lord, have mercy upon me. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. He ignored her. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. For she's crying out after us. Like she's begging and begging and begging. She won't stop. She's persistent. Watch this. She's persistent. She's begging for mercy. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is Jesus telling this woman. I was sent to the lost sheep of house of Israel. I was sent to the Jews, not to you guys. You're a Gentile woman. And he answered, Jesus said, it is not right to take the children's bread. It's not right to take the, Jew the bread that's given to the Jews and throw it to the dogs. Whoa. Yeah, you wouldn't. You know what? If Jesus was pastor, you know what? You know how many people would go to his church? <laughs> it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, remember, he whipped the Jews too, right? With a whip and he threw them out of the temple <laughs> and he called them snakes. <laughs> so I don't know who would go to Jesus's church. Hopefully we would. <laughs> and he answered, he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs. Even the dogs eat crumbs. I know who I am. But even they eat the crumbs from the master's table. The, the humility of that is just amazing. Then Jesus answered her and said, Oh, woman, watch this. <laughs> Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. Why was her faith great? The, the, the disciples were begging Jesus, get rid of this woman. She, they, she's driving us nuts. She won't stop. She's persistent. She's persistent. She's persistent. This is the nature of faith. It, does, it doesn't end. Why? Because it's Christ. It's faithful. She's persistent. Secondly, call me names. I don't mind. <laughs> I'm not here to receive justice. Yeah. You can call me a name and guess what? Again, don't be angry when people call you names. You're worse than what they're calling you. If you just really knew who you were, you wouldn't care. And she didn't care being called a dog. She goes, but, but don't forget. After he says, go away, dogs. This is, not, this, is, this is not for the dogs. This is for the children of Israel. She goes, don't forget. Dogs also eat the crumbs that fall from your table. I don't care how little it is you give me. I'll take it. I deserve none of it. This is the nature of faith. Faith is never self-empowered. You know, I used to listen to ministers teach me, release your faith, release it, speak, change. It's like, wait a minute. Oh, God, help me. I, don't, I need to know what faith is. And I see the nature of faith being humble. Matthew 8 to 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel, I have found such faith. Who's he talking about? 
He's talking about the centurion, the Roman. He's not even a Jew. Came to him and said, Sir, my son is on sick bed. He's about to die. I beg you, speak a word. Don't, don't come. Don't come. Because Jesus says, okay, let's go. He says, no, no, no. You don't come to my house. I don't need you to come to my house. Just say the word. My son will be healed. Jesus looked and he was amazed. The Bible says Jesus was amazed. And he turns to his disciples, the ones following him, the Jews for whom he came. And he said, see this Roman centurion? He doesn't even, he's not a Jew. I didn't even come for him. But I have never seen faith in all of Israel like this man. Because he understood who Jesus was. Yeah. God doesn't have to do what, God doesn't have to do things my way. Like, come to my house and they'll lay hands on my kid and now pray three times. You know, like, no, it's like anything you say becomes true and real because God, you're sovereign. This man understood who God was. He understood the godness of God. All you need is one word. And all of the universe came into existence. You don't have to come to my house. Just say something. And all things will be made new. This is faith. When you open up the word of God, do you hear God speak and do you have faith in the power of those words? If you believe he's sovereign, you would. If you believe he's sovereign, you would. And that is true faith. Believing in the sovereignty of God, like the centurion. The nature of faith is like that woman, the Canaanite woman. who said, I don't care how little I get. Oh God, I will grab onto it. That is true faith. Persistently humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I pray, Father God, that as we haven't even scratched the surface of all that you have for us regarding faith. Justification comes by this faith. Like Abraham, all he needed was to see what you have for him. And he believed, he believed it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And immediately he left behind all that he had and he went to what you called him to. Because faith trusts. Not only is our object of faith the actual Jesus of the Bible, not only do we know that Everything written it actually happened. We don't trivialize or eliminate any of the miracles we see in scriptures. We know that it's true. It actually happened. It's a historical fact. But now we rest in it. We rely upon the person of Christ and the work of Christ. We rely upon it that it is sufficient. It is enough to save us eternally. And not only that, we thank you, God, for a heart that repents a heart that has faith, a heart that can trust, and a heart that can remain humble before you, grateful for even the smallest amount. Oh God, we bow before your sovereignty today. You are God. Amen. Amen.